Star Trek Picard Season 1, Episode 10, Et in Arcadia Ego, Part 2, is over. But we are just getting started here on Post Show Recaps. And my name is Jessica Lee. We have a great episode, a great closer to the season to uh, break all down for you on this week's podcast. And with me, as always, is the MB to my JL, Mr. Mike Bloom. Jess, if we're living in some sort of simulation right now, there is a bug in the system. I think we need to restore things to a certain point and just sort of build from the ground up or maybe be like the data and sort of like regress the memories a bit to a save state and then load a different file from there. Yeah, I I don't know if anybody's tried turning it off and turning it back on again, but that's what I would do. No, I think certain people are thinking of just turning it off and hoping when you turn it back on that things will be okay. Yeah, I mean, sometimes, you know, if you've got a really old mainframe, you've got to turn it off and let it cool down. So I think I think we'd all be happy if things just cooled down for a little bit. Or if we just transfer all of our consciousnesses into androids that would be ridden of diseases. I don't know, Mike. We're going to get into all of that. Uh, we're going to have a lot to talk about here. And I have mixed feelings about the idea of putting your consciousness into an android for a variety of reasons. But before <laughs> we do all that, I want to take a moment to thank our sponsor. And that is our good friends over at Keeps. And this is a very appropriate sponsor for this podcast because while some guys really rock a bald head, some other guys may not want that for themselves at this point in time. And you may choose something else down the road, especially if you're inspired by the way that Jean-Luc Picard carries himself. But, you know, two out of three guys are going to experience some form of male pattern baldness by the time they're 35. And the good news is, with today's advancements in science, keeps observed proven treatments that can combat the systems of, symptoms of hair loss and keep, help you keep the hair you have at half the cost of your local pharmacy. That's right. So Keeps is your service to deal with male pattern baldness, to have you go from looking like Jean-Luc Picard to looking like Data with that luscious hairline. And of course, we know that other solutions uh, are quite costly. Good news about Keeps, you don't have to go broke to avoid going bald. Keeps offers generic versions of only two FDA-approved hair loss products out there. Some of you have, may have tried them before, but Probably never for this particular price point. And Keeps also now offers a prescription shampoo to keep your scalp healthy, too. Yeah. And, you know, if you if you are having a hard time getting to the doctor lately, um, and also, you know, if you if you're between doctors because your previous doctor murdered her romantic partner slash mentor, uh, Keeps has revolutionized the way men are treated for hair loss. So thanks to Keeps, you no longer have to go to the doctor's office for your hair loss prescription. Now you can visit a doctor online and get your hair loss medication delivered to your home. No more waiting rooms, no more pharmacy checkout lines. Get doctor attention and discreet drug delivery all from the comfort and privacy of your own home. Find out why Keeps has more five-star reviews than any of its competitors on the market. Nearly 100,000 men trust Keeps for their hair loss prevention medication. That's enough to fill an entire planet of synths, Jess. And the Keeps treatment only starts at just $10 a month. Plus, for a limited time, you can even get your first month free. That's one hell of a deal for getting to keep your hair. Apologies, Jess. I did not mean to swear a la Admiral Clancy in that last one. You know, it's it's quite all right. So quite all right, Mike. I think we all get really excited there. Well, if you're ready to take action and prevent hair loss, go to keeps.com slash recap to receive your first month of treatment for free. That's K-E-E-P-S dot com slash recap. Make it so. Go to keeps.com slash recap. And uh, let's start in a new voyage and a new hairline, perhaps. 
Let's boldly go where your hairline may have previously gone before. Do you think that after Picard got transferred and they're like, oh, we kept all of your same things, like, could you have given me some more hair, perhaps? <laughs> well, I think I think Picard is used to it. And, you know, when the androids met him last week, they were really into his look. So I think they would have encouraged him to keep on rocking with what he's got. Yeah, that's true. Uh, And I couldn't tell if like the whole line he said about, you know, I would have loved another 10 or 20 years added on to my my uh, my life expectancy. Is that to age him down 10 or 20 years or just bump up the upper limit to his uh, expected date of dying of natural causes? Yeah, I think he's pretty comfortable in his own skin or the skin that closely resembles his own skin, Mike. I I would imagine that he's probably all right with it. He's like, I can just be 94 years old and maybe instead of living to 114, I get to live to 134. Exactly. And I, you know what? I can still spend plenty of time navigating in the stars now. They say YOLO, but really YOLT. Uh, I am now on my second life in a brand new body, sans my aromatic syndrome, and I am ready to take to the stars with my bursting at the seams new crew. I'm surprised we didn't get like a little like strains of Nancy Sinatra coming in at the end, like play a little bit of that 1960s Sean Connery James Bond. Well, listen, we already had one crooner play us off, and I would much rather have the wonderful Issa Briones version of Blue Skies reverberating in my head then uh, the singer of these boots were made for walking uh, to, to send us off into the universe. But, oh, we have so much to talk about, Jess. I mean, true to what we sort of predicted last week, in a myriad of ways, this was a jam-packed finale. We got a lot done, I would say, and I know you argued this as well in your primetimer.com recap, that this was not the cleanest finale nor the cleanest episode of the season for Star Trek Picard. But, I mean... I almost feel like it was entire. the whole season, in my opinion, was entirely worth it for like those last 10 minutes, which just were unbelievable, in my opinion. Yeah, Mike, I'm not disappointed in this finale at all. I have probably there's a few things I think they could have done better. And if anything, I think it was too clean. I'm going to I'm going to err on the other side Hmm. of this, Mike, because I think we wrapped everything up so neatly and so perfectly And that's kind of the Star Trek way. It's not the first time this has happened across, you know, seven Star Trek series and how many movies and how many novels. There's always that last minute kind of cavalry comes in and everything gets a nice, neat bow tied on it. But I honestly, given how complicated this series has been up to this point and how many different little rabbit holes we went down, I was kind of surprised that we're just going to... We're just going to wrap up everything at the very end, and we don't leave a whole lot unexplored. Well, I think at this point, I believe they got the order for season two only about a week or so before season one premiered. So they were definitely out of post-production at that point. Everything had been packaged and assembled. So I feel like maybe had they been given the renewal confirmation while they were still filming... That may have changed the writing a bit. They did say on the ready room, Patrick Stewart and Allison Pill, that like a quote unquote major hint was dropped in the finale as to where they might be going in season two. From what I've been searching, I don't think anyone has truly figured out what that could be. Lord knows we have plenty of time to figure it out since Star Trek Picard season two is not really starting up anytime soon. But yeah, it could just be a case of like 
they didn't know if they were going on for another season. So if it's going to be a one and done thing, they wanted to close the case as firmly and cleanly as they could. It's so weird, Mike, that this is the reality we live in now. And I guess that's something we say about almost everything that happens every day (laughs) in this world. But it was never the case until the last like maybe five or so years that you would expect to get a renewal order before anybody in the public had ever seen a single episode of your show. And it's now kind of almost the usual. It's like, are we getting a season two before we even get a season one? Do we know about that yet? And it's really funny to hear you say if they only had found out about it a little bit sooner, it's like, how much sooner could it be? Like they make two episodes, but nobody had even seen this. And they were like, it's so good. We're going to make another one right away. I mean, to be fair, Star Trek Discovery has been renewed through season five before they finish post-production on season three. So, I mean, all access is not completely strangers to putting the cart before the horse. Very true. And I think on the streaming services, you get a little bit of a better idea of how well something's going to work. Um, I think you get more immediate feedback. And I think you also have a little bit less pressure. And I think we've seen a lot of these renewal orders happen very early on in shows that are on streaming services. I think the first one I can think of where that was a big deal was Orange is the New Black, Mm, which mm -hmm. immediately dropped. And then they're like, okay, we're making seven seasons of this. And then Arguably, maybe that was not the best idea, but it was the first season of that show was so great that I think everybody that saw it immediately knew that's going to be a big thing. Right. I mean, I would make the argument, I know we'll probably have some overall thoughts about the season at the end here, but I feel like the finale ties a nice enough bow on the season that I can officially declare this, in my opinion, the best first season of any Star Trek series. Uh, which I know is a bit of a low bar because even some of the best Star Trek series, your Deep Space Nines, your TNGs, did not have good first seasons. They were really still yeah. trying to figure things out. But I will give major credit to Akiva Goldsman, Michael Shabon, and Patrick Stewart, and Alex Kurtzman, and everyone under the sun, Kirsten Beyer, for being able to walk in here with a vision, being able to walk this extremely thin tightrope, and being able to pull off some pretty damn awesome stuff. Uh, I would say at least comparing it to the modern day Trek, I would say that Picard season one very much outshone Discovery season one. And I quite like Discovery season one. I mean, I've been saying for a few weeks now that it's the best Star Trek ever. Don't at me. But actually, feel free to at me because y'all know I'm right. (laughs) All right. Putting them on the throne right now, even when they're in their infancy. Yeah. I, I mean, this is like this is like the King Tommen of Star Trek's. We're putting it on the throne as a very small child. Oh boy. All right. Well, here's hopefully hopes that, hopefully yes. that goes a little bit better for them. At a certain point, yeah, they don't blow up like, I don't know, a Klingon church and then uh poor Star Trek Picard just throws himself out the window. Though though then he'd come back in a different android body. I mean if he's an android, we've seen data walk around on the outside of a spaceship with no protective gear. So I'm gonna assume Picard can also do that now. I don't know. They said that, like, oh, you know, we didn't give you any special abilities or, or special powers. I kind of feel like they did. Like, I, I do wonder, and again, I don't want to, you know, jump the gun too much, but I'm sure we'll talk at the end about possible storylines for season two. I could imagine something, honestly, with, like, Picard awakening, having his own Dodge slash Soji, like, awakening into his own latent abilities. And maybe he won't have, you know, door-bending super strength like Data does. But I do wonder if there's a bit of superhuman aspect to him now 
I'm pretty sure that this android could probably run up a flight of stairs and not get winded like original recipe Picard. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I, I think that, I mean, Patrick Stewart was still throwing himself around as much as he could in this season. So it's going to be a little bit par for the course. But yeah, I, I could see very much more of Picard in action, especially if season two involves more of them sort of being this like vigilante ragtag bunch not affiliated with Starfleet, just helping random people out around the universe. And I think maybe that's the most fun thing about this Star Trek is because every series that we've gotten up to this point has been Starfleet. It's been this kind of quasi-military organization in service to this utopian organization that is benevolent and almost always has has the right idea. And this one, I think, is different because there are so many shades of gray here. Like, we started out like Starfleet kind of ruined Picard's life. And this is something I did talk a little bit about in my Prime Timer article, but the first draft of that, I took out like three paragraphs about this idea of him being so distrustful of this organization that we've really not had any reason to distrust up until this series. Right. And now the idea that there's someone that's kind of a little bit outside the law and outside of that benevolent organization gives you a lot of room to play and a lot of room to explore in ways that you couldn't when you were so tightly bound by these lawful good entities. Right, to the point where, you know, they made a series where they're like, okay, uh, well, I guess we'll show Starfleet before the original series and see how they interacted. I, I think when you're not necessarily beholden to serving this organization where you have to have a science officer, you have to have a security chief, etc. You still have people sort of filling those roles on Picard's crew right now. But Yeah, and if you feel- don't have people, you have holograms. Exactly. But it and but it feels <laughs> you know, it feels a bit looser, but there's still gonna be moralistic qualities, I'm assuming, even though they're not necessarily following a prime directive, it does seem that Picard specifically has a very moral code we saw it even last episode when he's talking with soji when narek's spitting out in space of like hey we can't let a soldier die out there you know we let's do the respectful thing and take care of him you could tell that even though he is divorced from starfleet he still has those values baked into him as a person and assumingly into this new body as well so moving forward you know that's going to be again if if i'm assuming it's going to go back to more of a format of them sort of just like traveling around the universe helping people in this post-Romulan apocalypse society, then you can imagine that Picard's going to serve as that guiding force, sort of representing the Starfleet that once was. Yeah, it's it's a little more, it's a little bit more rough and tumble pioneering spirit than, um, than I think even, I think other series have tried to do that. I think certainly Deep Space Nine, the idea was that they were out on the frontiers of space. And Voyager, of course, got sucked into the frontiers of space. Mm. Discovery is supposed to be doing this, but it's still all under the that umbrella of Starfleet. And there's still already a code there. And I think when you don't have the code, I want to see what that world is like. Yeah, I completely agree. Yeah, so let's let's go back up to the top of the episode, Mike. Um I think I think there weren't a lot of shocking surprises this episode. Would you agree right. with that? Yeah, we talked about this a bit last episode, how I think with the reveal of the admonition, you know, landing on Capelius, we sort of had gotten a big sense as to like the big mysteries being solved. I guess the the only one left mainly was, you know, what happens what's this golem 
who's, you know, is there a consciousness that's going to be transferred to that? I guess speaking of that, Jess, because it seemed like when Alton Soon was talking with Gerardi, he was saying something along the lines of like, oh, you know, uh, you're performing an act of self-sacrifice. Is there a chance, Jess, that he, the plan was to put Gerardi's consciousness in a synth body? I'm not sure who that body was intended for, Soon himself, considering he was getting on in age. It was weird. I had thought that Soong was building that for himself. And it was almost like at the last minute, he's like, well, this could all go really horribly wrong. Maybe I don't want to be the person who does that. So I think the idea was at a certain point, he was a little bit afraid to do it himself because he didn't know what would actually happen to him. And having another having another meat person there <laughs> and someone whose loyalty may be in question I think the idea was she was going to prove her loyalty by getting in that meat suit. I could see also a, a, like his own perspective of, well, I'm the father of the synths and she's their mother. I'm going to die soon, but I want their mother to live forever. So I'm going to make her a synth so she can service them always. Yeah. Now, Mike, this was the part that I thought was was a little bit beyond belief. Um, it One of a few, but Gerardi is all of a sudden she's going to have the best poker face. Because we we saw her throughout this season really not having very much of a poker face at all. Right. I mean, she talks about this when she frees Picard, right? Being like, hey, I thought I was the worst secret agent ever, but it turns out I have a, a, a gift. I, I do kind of wish we saw that transition a bit more. I mean, we saw after she killed Bruce Maddox, she was puking cake all over the place. She was giving away her hand. Maybe it's just these new moments that that are brushed upon her that that she's really dove headfirst into the experience but yeah i mean she's a completely different person from the nervous wreck uh that we see on free cloud trying to manage the teleportation device yeah and we see her like the ship is rocking back and forth a little bit and she's like hiding under the desk begging for it to be over so this person like in this moment where she is being forced to join the bad guys and be their mother and give up her human body to get into this android meat suit. I'm going to keep calling it a meat suit. I don't know I, if that's I, accurate. I, like, I mean, listen, uh, as a Jew, I might go with Golem myself, but I will accept <laughs> a meat suit as a substitute. Um, maybe we should accept no substitutes. They do call it a Golem. Um, but it does seem like she should be she should be honestly afraid of this and mm. she is all of a sudden cold as ice and able to just slip into this idea and like fool not just a human but a bunch of androids who claim that they're super good at this that's kind of where it starts to fall apart for me because some of those androids should have been able to read that and they, I don't know, I guess, or maybe it is the opposite. Like data was always having trouble, like grasping people's sarcasm and whatnot, but these are like supposed to be much more sophisticated androids. And they're, they, we have seen them get upset. We have seen them claim to be very good at reading people. So I feel like she should have, she should have had her cover blown if that was where she was going. Yeah. And that's, I guess, where my main point about the episode maybe being a bit on the messy side comes from is I think just due to the expediency of the action going on, they tended to sort of rush through some of the character choices in order to service some bigger yep. plot points. Ergo, example, Narek. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yep. Because this was also, I feel like we missed a scene. Like I went back and watched it again because I'm like, okay, 
where does he actually make the decision? Is this all there is? It really felt like we needed another piece because all it was was basically Narissa telling him that mom liked her best. And he's yeah. like, oh, well, if I'm not going to get credit for bringing you all here, then I'm just going to join the bad guys. Yeah, I do wonder by the time it's actually a pretty fun shot where he like runs past the entrance to the cube. It's like, oh. Okay, I didn't realize it was here. All right, let me stop in. And he's able to uh, solid snakehead his way past Elnor and Seven of Nine to meet up with his sister. I mean, when he originally picks up those grenades, he tells her, hey, I, yeah, I, I want to blow up the orchids. Obviously, by the time he's throwing rocks at La Serena, the plan has changed. Is it something that he changed his mind off screen? Did he enter the cube well knowing that he was going to do that and he was tricking Rizzo? If that's the case, how much was that affected by Sutra, you know, essentially freeing him? Is this just sort of like a last ditch effort to try to, as you talked about last time, sort of get everyone on the same side to take on the synths? I'm not entirely sure. Now, look, I guess I, in the long run, am fine with the less narrative content, the better. But th this seemed like a, a few leaps I would say, especially for a big turnaround from this character that has been shady AF for nine episodes. Yeah, I mean, I mean there's so much of Narek that we didn't get. And I'm not saying, like you, I, I'm totally fine with the amount of Narek we got. But I think because he's so entrenched in this subterfuge, in this Romulan way, we never really got what he was really about and never believed him when he profess to have a real emotion about anything. Like, I think there are, maybe you can't do it with a Romulan, but I think there might have been a case to be made for he really loves Soji and wants to redeem her, or he is disgusted with his sister's actions and wants revenge. Or even if the answer really is that he's the black sheep of the family because he failed his Jot Vosh test and he wants to prove that he's better than all of them, Okay, that's good too, but none of these things really resonated because the character never really resonated. Right, because we don't know even as the audience when he's telling the truth and when he's not. Right. A very difficult characterization. Like, it works with some characters, but I mean, there's still internet discourse to this day about whether Severus Snape was a good character or not, because 75% of the time you had no idea what side he's on. I wonder if... There had been a moment when, you know, he was being held down by the sins and he was yelling to Soji to stop launching the beacon, stop with those Lincoln Log building blocks to construct <laughs> it. If, I mean, if he had expressed some sort of like emotion there, that would probably be the most telling thing, right? If he really did love her, uh, you know, he, he'd be making this more emotional plea with her rather than, I wouldn't call this a logical plea, just screaming at her, but it, it seemed to not necessarily be hearkening back to their relationship that someone in his position might be doing. Someone like Picard was able to successfully do by essentially saying, I trust you. You know, I trust you. We have to work together much as we have before. Nerex had been sleeping with her for some time, but he wasn't able to call upon anything other than get these guys off of me, Soji. Stop it. Yeah. I mean, is there is there a way this plays differently where we believe Nerex? I think if we had seen... I think if we'd seen more scenes with Narek alone, uh, I, mean, I don't, I don't know if we need like monologizing or anything like that. But the only scenes that we saw of him were of him with Soji and him with Rizzo, where he was telling them two different things. And I kind of just wanted that one moment of him by himself, so we could actually see, you know, is he conflicted? 
does he actually feel one way or the other? As a result, we're not even let in on those inner thoughts, and it makes that characterization more confusing, in my opinion. Yeah, or even give him someone else to talk to. Like, does he have yeah. a shrink? Like, is he going to Tony Soprano's shrink? That would work for me. Or even just see him relate to a variety of different people and give us enough different data points so that we could start to figure out whether we think he's on the up and up. That like, being, make, that the, make that the central puzzle, you know? That being said, Jess, what are the chances, scale of 1 to 10, that we see Narek in season 2? Well, given that we don't really know what happens to Narek at the end of this episode, I have to imagine he comes back in some form. Yeah, he was one of the only characters. Obviously, you know, after things get saved, they sort of do a bit of yada yada because they really want to focus on the Picard and Data stuff, understandably so. But yeah, after that, we go to the La Serena. We have no idea what happened to Narek. Did the Romulans beam him aboard when O slash General Nadar was like, okay, we'll take our ball and go home. Come on, Narek. Did he <laughs> somehow find his way? Did he pilot the artifact, maybe, or or find his own way back up into the stars? I think there's a non-zero chance we're going to see him in season two, not necessarily as an antagonist, but almost like as one of these recurring characters who they run into that's sort of linked to the group, but not really on their side necessarily, nor anybody's side. But that was another thing that was just very strange of like, okay, this is a guy who is not exactly your enemy, uh, he didn't kill Saga last episode, but still, like, he sticks out like a sore thumb. How does he get off that planet if he's not hitching a ride on La Serena? Yeah, or is he just going to go to, like, Android school with everybody else? That'd be interesting. Yeah, or maybe maybe he's left behind as the teacher, but I don't think you want Narek teaching everybody about the value of humanity. No, it's just going to be a lot of gray. They're not going to be wearing gold anymore. They're only going to be wearing just gray smocks and always tricking each other and stabbing each other in the back, quite literally. Yeah, like we come back to the android planet and everybody's gone emo. <laughs> oh, man, yeah. If everyone has those Narek bangs and speaks in that like hushed British, British accent that Harry Treadaway does. <laughs> yeah. So speaking of, speaking of Romulans with hushed British accents, here's another question I wanted to float by you, Mike. How sure are we that, that Nerissa really died? Oh, God, I hope so. I, I know, but... I know, I know, but she is like the perfect OTT villain to set up. I, I completely understand that, but like, we were robbed of that opportunity with the XBs jumping her. I guess she didn't beam onto one of the Romulan warbirds. I guess she just beamed onto another part of the artifact and has sort of been hiding out there since seven took over but we get a bit of like a a badass fight here and then uh seven of nine becomes leonidas for a second and you know does the this is for hugh and kicks nerissa into this long long abyss which they even shut up and set up in an establishing shot when Narek came aboard I, I i i just find it unnecessary if they brought her back like if you're looking for like a big brute who can fight well. There are plenty of people out there in the galaxy that are capable of doing that. I, I still maintain that while I think Peyton List is a good actress and the character represented the brutality of the Jat Vosh, I, I just overall, I'm not necessarily as jazzed for this character as I was for basically any of the other main characters that were introduced this season. Yeah, I definitely agree, but it is just the kind of chicanery that this genre does best is to drop somebody down an abyss and then you don't habeas the corpus so you don't know mm -hmm. and you always leave that door just a little bit cracked open in case you want to bring her back 
Right, and turns out that uh, she actually landed on a dumpster, and she was hiding under it for a season or so, and then she was able to crawl out and finally take revenge on Seven of Nine. Yeah, I was about to say, you know, one thing I like about The Walking Dead is that 99% of the people that die on that show, there is no question that they're dead, but then I remembered the dumpster. And, you know, that was like the exception that proves the rule, to be honest, because when somebody dies on Walking Dead, it is... It is, you know, to borrow a phrase, there is that corpses and entrails and the streets are thick with blood. And, you know, it's like the Chicago got un- unleashed. Yeah, exactly. Poor Ganmadan. It was prevented, at least. Yeah, I mean, we've, we've seen this in Star Trek, right? I mean, not necessarily seen it. That's the point. But, I mean, it's gotten to the point where there was a lot of theories being bounced around last week that, you know, lore was involved in this. Because while mm-hmm. he died, it happened off screen, so we didn't see it. So... Like you said, I think especially in modern TV, I think we're very much conditioned of like, okay, well, maybe if it didn't happen off screen, especially as someone who is very uh, into like superhero movies and TV shows, that is so rampant of like, if you don't see the dead body being lowered into the ground, they did not die. That being said, I'm I'm hopeful that this isn't the case, because I also feel like it would kind of be a disservice to Hugh as well that like, well, we can't kill the person who killed him. We can't actually get revenge on poor Hugh, who got just, you know, mercilessly stabbed by a throwing star. Yeah, but we also got Seven of Nine being, like, weirdly conflicted about killing her. Which, I was like, you know, nobody's gonna be upset with you for that. She was gonna destroy everybody. She killed your friend. She was gonna kill you. That was totally self-defense. You shouldn't feel bad about this. Yeah, can I also just say that uh, I know that it seems like she's going. She's a part of the crew at the end of the episode. I am putting all my money in the fact that I think in between seasons we are getting an announcement that Jerry Ryan is going to become a series regular for season two. She's going to wharf it up. She's going to become a, a crew member in two different Star Trek franchises. But I really like the sneak peek into her relationships with some of the other crew members. I think that scene with Rios was a really interesting pairing that I never really thought about before, but I really loved their play between each other. Them both being like, yeah, we, we both have something to mourn about, uh, these morally conflicting choices that we made, and we're both sort of brooding in that regard. And also, uh, she may be knocking boots with Rafi? Maybe? What the I hell was it. that? <laughs> I, I, I ship it so hard, it's the La Serena. I mean, I suppose so, but we have not been given, and this doesn't necessarily need to happen in this day and age, but I feel like we haven't been given an inclination that either one swung that way, that they were uh, flying that type of ship, if you get my drift. So to have them certainly like hold hands after taking a shot at the end, Angela and I just sort of like had to pause it for a second and like just balk at the notion for a good 30 seconds of like, what? Oh, did we miss something? Is there a deleted scene that, that hits towards these two? These two characters have barely ever interacted and now we're going to ship them all of a sudden. Yeah, I I mean, I honestly, I hadn't heard that there was any fanfic to this effect or that people were clamoring for it. But, you know, maybe in the future, everyone's bisexual. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't exactly know from a Borg perspective, you know, is, is are Borg asexual? I'm assuming if they're part of a collective, I think the idea of gender is sort of out the window. But again, like you said, I'm not mad at it. I think it's an interesting character pairing. We just had absolutely no setup for this. This might have been the most surprising thing of all in this episode, Jess. Yeah, well, it's an interesting thing. I think I've seen a lot of shows in the modern era do this where they think about, here's our ensemble cast, 
and what is each character's relationship to each other character. And, you know, I always, the example that I always go with that I think a show that did this really, really well is Parks and Rec, where they would just every episode, you would have several new pairings of characters that had not spent a lot of time before. And it's like, well, what would they have to say to each other? What could they do together? Mm. And what is their, what is their connection with each other? And I think this episode, they tried to take a lot of those characters in this cast and figure out, well, what would their reaction be? Like, what is the conversation they would have in the aftermath of Picard's death? Like, what do Rios and Seven have to say to each other about this? What's their common ground? And what are Elnor and Rafi going to do? They're just going to wail at each other because they're both very free about their emotions. And then, okay, what does Seven and Rafi do? I don't know. I guess they bang. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, any coping me- mechanism. I I really loved the Seven. Uh, no, I did love the Seven and Rio stuff, but I thought the Elnor and Rafi stuff was also interesting as well in that, you know, Elnor lost a parental figure and Rafi, in a manner of speaking, lost her son earlier on in the season. And I feel like she sort of found one, especially if he's moving forward as part of the crew. I could very much see her taking on the parental role and really taking him on because she's missing that in her life. And I mean, if you're talking about character configurations, we finally had Narek interacting with people on the main cast besides Soji. And finally, Jess, something we had been jonesing for since we previewed the show, the idea of two Romulans in Elnor and Narek sort of talking back and forth between each other really represented, you know, we got to know so much about Romulans over the course of this season, but to get to see sort of two different sects of the same pair of ears as it were, was a lot of fun and and an interesting reminder as to how, you know, your look does not necessarily define who you are as a person. Yeah, like, and I think that's something this series has done better than any other Star Trek. And I think it's one of the reasons that I have enjoyed this season so much is because it wasn't just like, oh, well, our people all do things this way and we all look like this. It was really a much more deep study of like, what does every piece of what we know about Romulans, how does that inform how they live and how might people disagree with each other? But I also, I want to go, I want to back up one more second because the thing you said about Rafi being kind of a parental figure to Elnor, the other person in this cast who is also a parental figure to Elnor, Seven of Nine. Mm, that's true. Yeah. So cause... that's their common ground. Like that's where they connect. It's like, oh, I feel very maternal toward this boy. Well, so do I. Maybe they're going to co-parent him. I like that. Elnor has two moms. I listen. They're they're kick-ass parents. And yeah, I mean, to watch Elnor's journey as well has been. You know, we've only gone to see him over the course of six episodes. But this poor guy, you know, sheltered as all get out, leaves home, goes onto a board cube where he kills some people. One person he's very close to dies. Someone decides to, like, take him under their wing and then becomes possessed by the Borg Cube for a hot second. And then, you know, he flies to a planet just in time to see his fatherly figure die. It's a lot for him to undergo. And I'm excited to explore this character in particular moving forward because it really is. I think he's probably the blankest canvas of all, even blanker than Soji. So I think they're going to have the opportunity to paint a lot of stuff in there, especially if he does have sort of these, these people to look up to in Picard and Raffi and Seven of Nine. Yeah, I think, and I think the other thing about Elnor that I really respond to is how he still embraces the way of absolute candor and his emotions are always right there in the front. And it's kind of like, it's like he is the opposite 
of of Narek in that regard because Narek, you never know what he's feeling, and Elnor, it's like he can't help but tell you exactly how he's feeling all the time, and you know that you can believe what he says. And I think I already feel like I know him so much better than we ever got to know Narek. Yeah, I completely agree because his character is so open. It provides you so much access to who he is as a person. And you can say that for a lot of people, even someone like Rios, who was harboring this secret for so long. I still feel like we got to know him through a lot of his interactions. I think it's because someone like Narek, his entire to-do was to run a scheme, run a con, essentially, for most of the season. That that really sheltered him and sort of put him in a corner character wise, as opposed to some of these other characters, which obviously do have a lot of baggage that we might not know about. We're still finding things out about them. And speaking of shipping, Jess, it seems like Jurios is alive and well and ready to go into season two. And this was another thing where the writers were like, "Okay, Gerardi and Rios, what are they going to have to say to each other? Well, they're both, you know. They're both into the opposite gender, and they're an appropriate age, and they're attractive. I guess they're going to bang, too. Yeah, I, I do kind of see—I wouldn't call them opposites, but I do get a sort of, like, opposites attract idea from them that, like, she is a little awkward and bookish and, to a certain extent, bubbly, and he is brooding and, you know, recalcitrant and, uh, you know, smooth as all get out. And so I, I think it is an interesting pairing. It's not— exactly on the WTF level of Deanna Trillian Wharf, but I, <laughs> I, I see some stuff there. At least they laid the groundwork a few times from that random hookup. Uh, I don't know, maybe they're going to make use of Rio's apparently bottomless supply of soccer balls at some point in their bedroom <laughs> activities. You can replicate a soccer ball, Mike. But why does he have so many at once? Um... Because I think there are certain drills you do where you just line up all the soccer balls. I mean, the only soccer that I've played in recent memory has been um, for three-year-olds. So I don't really know, but they always have like 50 soccer balls out on the field, whatever they're playing. Well, maybe Rios was running like a little league soccer before he ended up leaving Earth. And he just happened to, you know, hold on to the balls by accident. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, if, if like Jordan Kalish was piloting a starship all of a sudden, he'd have like a whole locker full of sports equipment. If Jordan Kalish is piloting a piloting a spaceship, I think the they're going to warp into some place in the Delta Quadrant because the mass is going to be completely <laughs> off on the warping. <laughs> That's a fair point, Mike. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it was interesting to also see a bit of a callback. Speaking of the soccer ball, to the the free cloud con editing, where it's like, here's Narek explaining the plan. Cut to them doing that Wookiee prisoner yep. gag. Uh, and, you know, to a certain extent, it was fun to watch that sort of fail as well, to have Rios go for it, and then to have Soji just grab the grenade and throw it into the air. In hindsight, maybe bring more than one grenade if you want to blow up the beacon, but I can understand if they want to get in under the strict restrictions that Synthville is providing. Yeah, and I really loved that, like, Rios is still bouncing the soccer ball around, and you could watch Rafi's face while he's doing that. Yeah, like, do not blow us up, asshole. It's like, she's seen season one of Lost. Yeah, exactly. Like, you do not mess with dynamite. You know what happened to the guy who invented dynamite? <laughs> he exploded. And you might have Rios. They all might have. But, you know, I, I don't know. It seems like these grenades, in the future at least, are smart enough. Like, they fly off on their own. Like, it, it seems like they're smart enough to sort of get the cue to uh, to make its way out of whatever housing it's in. But, yeah, I mean, they also had another, like, this whole group, they had 
an unlikely co-conspirator in Narek, then they had another one in Alton Soong after he found out what happened to Saga. Like, you were totally right. This was a, a little bit of a motley crew within the motley crew that assembled to try to make this last-ditch effort to stop the beacon. Yeah, it was... It was weird, though, because it really seemed like we were switching allegiances for no apparent reason. And Narek, we've already talked about a little bit. Um, but it was also like, I didn't quite catch why Soong decided he was going to help out on the side of right. I think it was just because he found out that Sutra was trying, was emotionally manipulating the other sins to get done what she wanted. And mm. I mean, he had that line to her, right? Like, reason isn't everything. I think he sort of realized that you know, the end does not justify the means in that it's regard. It's like, oh, I failed at raising you, so I guess I'm just going to go jump ship now. Yeah, I mean, to a certain extent, it seems. Or maybe he was just like, oh, this maybe isn't best for the synth. I mean, he definitely seemed to be the one that was really gung-ho along with Sutra of like, look what happened to one of our own by these poor Romulans. We have to destroy humanity. Hey, if it turns out that humanity was not the one to destroy the synths, the synths were, then you're starting to rethink this idea a little bit. Yeah, it's synth-on-synth synth violence. Exactly. I get it. Yeah, don't joke but, the stats. Yeah, it was weird to me that Soong was, like, last episode, he's like, oh, yeah, organic life sucks. Let's kill it all. And now he's immediately, he's like, oh, well, I'm going to walk that back a little bit, and maybe organic life's okay, and we're going to maybe not destroy everything. It was like, my, my bad. I was I was wrong. Did Soon just turn Sutra off? Like, did he flick her off switch or did he, like, outright kill her? Because that would be a little hypocritical, wouldn't it? I still have a problem with this idea that you can kill a synth by stabbing him in the eye. Yeah, you can kill a human by doing that, but it sure seems like there's, I guess there must be a secret reset button in there. Yeah. So it also seems like a really big waste of raw materials if you're just going to kill your synths and like not have them be redeemed. Like, why don't you just wipe her memory? Yeah. Cause I think data had an off switch definitely in TNG. Yeah, so I would not data be surprised if that, if that fail safe was programmed as the other synths, albeit maybe in more conspicuous places. Yeah. Like maybe it's their belly button. Like where's the best place to put an off switch on your synth? I, it's gotta be like someplace private, right? Something that like does not show in your day to day. Uh, I'm not sure. Maybe like your lower back, like in the transplant yeah. stamp spot. Well, it's got to be someplace where you're not going to hit it by accident either. Mm, that's a good point. What about on like the roof of your mouth? Yeah, that's a good place because you don't necessarily, if you're a synth, you don't have to eat. Yeah, exactly. And I think but it, it, and if it so would really suck if you started getting like food caught up in your reset button. Yeah, that's, that's why synths don't eat peanut butter because then it gets stuck in your reset button and then you're just gonna be shut down until somebody pumps you back up again yeah uh, I, I i'm sure they got one synth that does that all the time yeah poor larry yeah oh larry were you eating the gif again oh man oh, all right well let's get him back in sir let's get back in service fix him up let's give the new guy Narek something to do to start larry back up for the umpteenth time that, that's what Narek's gonna be doing there he's yeah. gonna be like all of the all of the slightly all the slightly off synths that keep accidentally activating their reset buttons he has to go and like help him out yeah it's gonna be like stand and deliver with synths where like he's <laughs> educating this like very run down you know the group that people the synths that people left behind and he's gonna show them that they're worth something 
Oh my God. That's, that's the spinoff we all need. Like I, we talk every week. There's a different spinoff we want to see. Like we want to see the, the Elnor and Seven crime fighting procedural. And we want to see like the, we want to see like the Sweet Valley High romance drama. But no, I think we, I think we've cracked it. We want dangerous minds with Narek. Oh my God. That would be amazing. Cause you don't know, like, is he really working for the students or is he like supporting the teachers union? We're not sure. And he's going to go in there and he's going to try to speak their language and he's going to get up on the desk and be like, bleep, bloop, bleep. <laughs> one zero one one zero. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm here for this. That's that's where Narek went. Like, I'm definitely uh, let's just make that canon right now. Yeah, I think so. And then who do we make? Like, is uh, is Riker like the hardened principal? He's going to come in at one point to check in on him. Well, I mean, Soong could be the hardened principal. Yeah, I guess that's true. He does. He's sort of like live in there. Yeah, he's already there. And he's like, he's going to be the boss. And he's going to be the one that's like, hey, your unorthodox methods are not what these children need. Exactly. Their parents are complaining. And I'm their parent. I'm the one that's complaining. <laughs> yeah. So maybe he's just like the head of the PTA. Ooh. He's like, no, I am the PTA. I love that. I, yeah. He, I mean, he is the one P on the planet. <laughs> yep, Exactly. Those are some really boring meetings. <laughs> yeah, just, I mean, attendance is 100% uh, unless he's sick, in which case the meetings do not happen. <laughs> yep. And then uh, they have the PTA bake sale every year, and then he gets in trouble because he put the peanut butter bars out. Yeah, exactly. And, and then like, Larry's oh, wait, got, those were for me. Got to turn Larry back on again. Larry. Did you eat the peanut butter again? Oh my god, we're completely we're off the rails here, Jess. Uh, <laughs> I that's the best place to go is off the rails. Um, I I guess I want to talk a little bit about Picard's pep talk to Soji mm-hmm. because it sure seemed like this was exactly the same pep talk he tried to do last week, and for some reason it worked the second time. Maybe it's because there was a captive audience. I was a little intrigued, Jess, as to so obviously he was on this sort of like three week call with O and Riker. I'm a little confused as to. When Picard was hailing Soji, why Owen Riker were able to see that? Did he just accidentally like not pick up, you know, not press, you know, hang up other calls and only stay on one line with Soji? I think it was a publicly available Zoom link is what I think it was. Ooh, I like that. I'm glad that still exists 300 years later, 400 years after the fact. Yeah, yeah. And Riker's like, oh, sorry, I was on mute. And... And then O like starts eating something in front of the microphone, and everybody's like, "Could you please hit your mute button? All we can hear is feedback." Yeah, and then like her cat or Spot Two comes roaming in in front of Soji, and they have to like get the cat out of the frame. I can imagine Riker being like, "I said something really badass, but I was on mute. I don't exactly know how the uh, Zheng He <laughs> works, but trust me, it was something very, very mean to you, Commander Commodore O, if that is your real name." Yeah, and she's like, "I believe you," and then she pieces out. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it looks like a. I mean, I wonder, since Commodore O's, you know, identity has sort of been given up, I can imagine that she is out of Starfleet now. She's not going to try to <laughs> run that so, con twice. Am I fired? Yeah. Or should I come back to work on Monday? Or I mean, what do you um, want me to do? Should I clean have, out my desk? Yeah, unless we have, like, Commodore P next season, who's just, like, her with a mustache, you know? Like, <laughs> oh, my goodness, I wonder what happened to Commodore O. I can imagine that this is definitely the, not the last we'll see of the Romulans, specifically the the Jot Vosh variety, but yeah, I think I mean again, this is another reason why I feel like we don't need Nerissa Rizzo is that I feel like O slash Hadar, I think her name is, is like just perfectly what you need. If you need the big bad Romulan, you have one right there. No need for two. Yeah, no need to like pull Nerissa out of the pit. Yeah, 
Exactly. But yeah, so so to go back to the speech, yeah, I mean, I wonder if what really hit home for Soji was, you know, we trust you to make the right choice. I trust you, Soji. I know you. I believe in you. Uh, and I, this idea of, like, she is someone who hasn't necessarily believed in herself and has been very hesitant to trust anybody, including Picard, that in that moment he is expressing so much trust in her and only her, not getting to Data, not getting to Capelius, knowing that she can do the right thing and that becoming the Destroyer does not have to be a self-perpetuating narrative like the whole Ganmadon thing was with the Romulans, where they tried to stop synthetic technology from taking over and they unintentionally caused synthetic technology almost taking over. Those robot arms were almost reaching through that wormhole. But in that moment, Picard made Soji realize that it was her choice and that, you know, she has free will in that regard and that makes her human at the end of the day. And so she decides in that moment that she's going to do the most human thing possible and, and make a choice and not have since take over the world, universe, galaxy. Yep. And the, the beacon closes up and the little arms are like reaching through. And so she's like, no, no, sorry. Sorry. It was a butt dial. Didn't mean to call you. Go about your day. Yeah. And they're like, oh, no. Yeah. And just kind of like the little tentacles go right back into the hole. Yeah. I mean, that was interesting. I mean, I guess so the, the synths that have superseded all time and space are... I don't know, a version of the uh, of the droid from The Incredibles? <laughs> or did you ever see the Futurama episode with the tentacle beast? That, yes. Um, yes. I think it's that. That would be an interesting. That's sort of like a Star Trek idea. This, like, this thing that like everyone is in a relationship with. I wonder, it could bring you love and maybe it would make all humanity just so in love with it and because synthetics can never fall in love they're going to take over as a result just because they're not enamored by it one-sided relationships will be the downfall of us all mike yeah i mean understandably so uh yeah so and the romulans are just like well that threat's gone so i think we're good for now let's avoid a stand down with the federation bye yep peace yeah i mean it looked for a second like I was very surprised that O was not going to back down when Riker's like, hey, we have some, we have 200 badass ships here. Do not fire. And she's like, ah, I think I'll still fire. Yeah, I think, and I think there's another interesting parallel we have right here um, where we see Narek at the beginning um, when he's coming up to the La Serena and he's throwing rocks at it and everybody sticks their head out like, what you doing throwing rocks? Uh, we should just kill you right now. And he says, I have grenades here. If Here's how you trust me if I was really if I was really a malicious person with bad intentions, I would just throw one of these grenades at you and yet here I am throwing rocks. And then the same thing happens later on where Picard says to Soji, if we all really wanted to destroy you, if we had bad intentions, we wouldn't be holding off the Romulans up here. We would just let them kill you. Mm, that's true. Speaking of the diversion routine, what do you think about the like the Picard maneuver meets a funhouse mirror. Yeah, the Picard super maneuver. Yeah, exactly. And actually, a fun thing from the ready room. So apparently the Picard maneuver does not only refer to his time in the Stargazer where he went into high warp all of a sudden and essentially went from zero to 60 to make it look like there were two of him. But apparently that was like onset nicknames for pulling down your uniform so that <laughs> it doesn't ride up. <laughs> And apparently that was coined by Jonathan Frakes, but apparently Will Wheaton said that production would not allow him to do the Picard maneuver, and so his shirt was always bunched up when he was sitting at that console. 
Yeah, it's like the equivalent. I mean, you saw how high those pants go yeah. back in the TNG era. I, I understand why he wants to pull his shirt down. But yeah, so now if you watch TNG in the, in the time in between seasons and you see the number of times that Picard pulls down his uniform, that is the interior uh, or internal Picard maneuver. It's just the straightening out your uniform so that things don't get rumpled and Gene Roddenberry throws a hissy fit. It's the fixing of the wedgie. Yeah, exactly. But he's able to to bring one here. I also want to bring up, Jess, I'm still not sure how I feel about this imagination device. <laughs> the the magical imaginary fixer? Yeah, I know that Star Trek has done some pretty fantastical stuff, but this this is a weird one for me. I mean, I'm glad it was used sparingly only twice, but considering it's going to assumingly remain on board the La Serena, this cannot be the last time we deal with this thing, right? God, this is going to be like, this is the kids show spinoff where it's like the imagination machine. It creates whatever we want it to have. There is a show that, that my child watches that is this exact premise. She has a magic wand and every episode she wishes for something new and she gets it. Wow, that's, that sounds like a pretty lame show. It's it's surprisingly good. Okay. It's, Angela Santomero is the creator. She's the same person behind Daniel Tiger and Creative Galaxy and a bunch of other really good ones. But yeah, the show's called Wish and Poof. And I, I know your kid isn't big enough to really be into the selection of children's programming on Amazon Prime. But when he gets there, it's there for him. Interesting. Well, is, are there any like conflicts that arise? Because to me, it sounds like a three minute episode of like, mm, I would <laughs> like a cookie. I wish for a cookie. Here's my cookie. The end. Well, she's still mastering her magic, so sometimes she gets it wrong, and sometimes um. it's not exactly what she wanted. And then sometimes she mostly she's learned to harness her power to facilitate adventures. Oh, that sounds a lot like someone like Soji for next season. Yeah. Of like, oh, she's she has a better sense as to who she is. There's no ban on her. Seemed like that thing got turned over real quick. Apparently, oh, we're going there in a second. But yeah, but, she seems like someone yeah. who is like very fully awakened. And she's going to serve this like data-like role on this new version of the La Serena, and it's probably going to be invaluable to the crew moving forward. Yeah, I, I think you know she's been activated. She knows what her powers are, and she can kind of use them to help the group. Yeah, and I think she wasn't able to do that before um, because all this other stuff was going on, and also because she really was conflicted about her identity. And now she know she knows where her home is. She knows where she came from and what she's capable of. And I think that makes her a very interesting addition. I agree. Because there's still a lot for her to learn. Yeah, I really do think the trip back to Capelius was the eye-opener for her. Even though she has woken up before, I feel like this is something that really allowed her to set into her reality. Maybe that's another reason why, to your point, Picard's plea last episode didn't work as well as it did here, where, like, she finally got to see the forest for the trees a bit and realized she was in a forest in general and think, okay, now that I know where I came from, this gives me a better sense of who I am, but more importantly, who I can become, and that's my choice. It doesn't matter who made me or, you know, who's positrons are in my brain i'm my own person and so she she makes the decision to stop the plan to stop the beacon and then you know summarily have picard die in the midst of all of his crying friends and then also be part of the brain trust to help bring picard back to life yeah can we talk about picard's death now Ooh, i think okay. this is a good time to bring this up because he says he's sacrificing his life for her but isn't he kind of gonna die anyway? Well, I, I think that's what it, I think. 
at that point, he had already sort of had a bit of like a brain spasm. Um, and so I think that is what he literally meant was like, I'm going to push my body to the brink. And that's in in order to divert them so that we get time to sort of stop this thing from happening. Because I can imagine that his effort in doing all of this is what ultimately pushed him to death. Uh, that he just pushed his mind and his body way too far in that instant. And finally, when the adrenaline died down, that's when he hits the deck. Inspirational speech takes a lot out of you. I, apparently so. So does flying with uh, hologram controllers. And good on him for not being that typical old guy who's like, I don't know how this works. I'm never going <laughs> to learn. I'm going to call my grandson Rios to come in and help me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he could have he could have invoked the holograms to do it for him, and he didn't. So I guess there's something to be said about about doing your own dirty work. I suppose so. And also, it's always fun when Picard flies uh, spacecraft. I remember there was one time he flew a runabout in one episode that I can't really remember where, like, he had to really precariously navigate it in this in this storm where he couldn't see anything in front of him. And it's those moments when you sort of, like, forget that while Picard is a great leader, he also has been, like, a damn good officer for quite some time before ascending to those ranks. And we got a, a hint of it here, but then some really nice, fun, comedic moments as well with him being, like, very, very shaky, both physically and mentally, with having to get back on that bike. Yeah. Yeah, but he he got there, and I think he comported himself very well. Yep. So what do you make of Picard's final words? They're too Raffi, you were quite right. Is that referring to a specific situation in your opinion? Um, it's hard to tell. I I wasn't sure exactly what to make of this either, um, unless it is referring to the very genuine heartfelt conversation that they had last week. Um, mm. where Rafi is like thanking him sincerely and like telling him, I know you don't like to say I love you, but I love you. And he says it back. Like maybe that's what it's regarding. Yeah. The only other thing I can think of is, you know, in those first few episodes of the season where Rafi was very anti Picard, you know, I think she would say things to a certain extent of like, you have a death wish, you know, why are you going back to this planet? Uh, you know, why do you feel like you, you're saying goodbye to things for the last time? Maybe the you were quite right was referring to him basically saying, yeah, you're right. I did have a death wish and this is my death. So this is what I had to do. But I want to say you were right because I know you were asking Rios to say it. So I'm going to be the one to say it. Yeah, that makes sense. I think that's I think that's a more that's a more sophisticated line of thinking. Though, I don't know, this could be like a secret that we don't know until season two of a secret conversation that they had where he was sort of like, you know, I, I wonder if Picard had actually died. I feel like that could have been a bigger secret, but because he's going to be back, it doesn't feel like we necessarily need to know, like, what was the big secret between them, considering that both characters are still alive. It's not something that Picard's taking to the grave. Yeah, they can sit on that secret a little while longer if that's what it is. But yeah. Did anybody honestly think that Picard was really going to stay dead here? Especially not when there were, what, like 17 minutes left of the episode? Yeah, I mean, we could just spend like 16 of those minutes eulogizing him and have him open his eyes on minute 17, I guess. But yeah, he's not, if that was, if he was really going to die, I feel like that was the last thing we would have seen. And I think with having this convenient 
having this convenient body to put his consciousness into and spending so much time talking about that and unpacking it and making it seem like such a big deal. Of course, that's where he's going. Yeah, especially, you know, we see it at the beginning of the episode as well as a brief reminder. I believe it was even in the previously on, which sort of recapped the entire season up to that point. So it seems like Soong, Soji, and Jurati were able to, I guess, grab like a neural scan of Picard's last few seconds. I'm assuming this is like after he died, but I guess before the rigor mortis set in, I suppose they were able to sort of take a snapshot and download that into this quantum simulation that Data was residing in. Yeah, and Mike, you know, you and I have seen a lot of Black Mirror, so I think this is a good place to talk about putting your consciousness into a quantum simulation. We This never ends well for people in Black Mirror unless you are a couple of lesbians in an 80s sim- simulator. Yeah, maybe, again, could be a path for Rafi and Seven of Nine in the future. Uh, but yeah, I mean, luckily, Picard was not recruited to, like, change the temperature in Alton Soong's room. You know, that would probably be the worst case scenario. Yeah. No, the worst case scenario is the one where you get put into a stuffed monkey and you can only say monkey needs a hug and monkey loves you. Uh, I want that in Patrick Stewart's voice, though. Like a little Picard doll that they carry around. <laughs> a little action figure. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, and this is even experienced in Westworld Season 2. My mind has just been on robots so, so recently, just with with everything going on in <laughs> pop culture. But yeah, this is a big point in Westworld Season 2, this idea of transferring a human consciousness into a robot. I mean, you gotta feel like it's not... We talked about this in the beginning of the podcast. Like, it, it can't be a complete, easy transfer that there has to be something that's going to, you know, be a little bit of a jolt in his system moving forward. Otherwise, the process just seems too easy to do, especially for being it's it being seemingly one of the first ones. I know that uh, Noonien Soong, Alton's father, was able to transfer his wife's consciousness into an android in a similar way that happened with Picard here. But I feel like it's a fairly new and very risky process. Yeah, and I think, as I recall, that did not go 100% smoothly. No, it was a very weird experience where someone comes on board and says, hey, Data, I'm your mother. And then it's like, are you? Technically, yes, but also no, because I'm not your biological mother, more a mechanical representation of your mother. Yeah, but Data doesn't even have a biological mother, so that's even weirder. Yeah, exactly. The term biological just sort of goes out the window when you're dealing with Creatures that do not have human biology. Yeah, if you're not biological, you can't have biological parents. I think that's the takeaway. And I think also, I I imagine we will have some plot points next season about Picard adjusting to the android body and finding out things about it that are different from his human body. Like, for example, like Rios leaves a peanut butter sandwich on (laughs) on the dash and he eats it and it all goes very wrong. Yeah, he passes out for quite some time, and then we just sort of piece together, like, that one episode of TNG when they all passed out for, like, a few hours, and <laughs> yep. Data was the one to to unlock exactly what happened during that time. It's going to be interesting, because I think in this capacity, like, Soji might have the upper hand on him, sort of be his teacher. She's been aware of being a synth a bit longer than Picard has. Uh, you know, maybe there's something in Picard as well that's going to be awoken, whether it's from, like, a a consciousness perspective or just a pure mechanical perspective i mean i guess the good news is the synth ban has been lifted so soji and picard himself are now able to travel the stars 
without worrying, even though both of them were able to pass very, very easily. So it's not like they would have been easily busted anyway. Yeah, but Mike, I got to say, I am not pleased with the way that they just sort of hand waved away the synth ban. And I have to think that there's going to be repercussions of this. Like they've been fomenting prejudice against synthetic life for 14 years and completely banning it outright and kind of shunning people that are interested in it and want to work on it. Like you see how Gerardi is, she can only get to a certain point in her research and people think it's kind of weird and icky. And now it's like, oh, well, that's over now. Everybody's legal. It's fine. I think it would have been a much more interesting thing. I think two ways this could have been more interesting. Way number one, what if Picard has to then go and advocate for synths yeah. now and work to get the ban repealed? I completely I think, agree. I think I think that could have been a season two episode in its entirety. That could have like, been season two. Yeah, just it's just they go back to Earth and they go to San Francisco and they essentially argue for their lives in front of Starfleet. Yeah, that would have been amazing. I would have been really happy to see that. And I think it also echoes the way that Picard had to advocate for data back in the Measure of a Mad days. Mm -hmm. So that's one way I am really surprised they didn't they didn't utilize Picard the statesman because he's very good at that kind of thing. And it makes sense for his character and makes sense with the way things are structured. But the other thing that I think would have also been interesting is – what if they don't lift the synth ban right away? And what if Picard and Soji are now, in a sense, illegal? And Picard has always felt that, you know, androids are people too, and they deserve rights, and he never agreed with the synth ban. But now, now that it's affecting him personally, I think it would have been interesting to see him grapple with that and maybe, like, have to evade capture and be a little bit outside the law. That would have made for an interesting season two as well. I agree with that. Uh, you know, it, it's very much sort of a chain of command where, like, he's done nothing wrong, but he's almost, like, gaslit into believing he did something wrong, that there are four lights uh, yep. or there are five lights. So I think that's a really interesting concept to explore. And maybe that is something that got maybe wrapped up a little much, because I know that Goldsman and Shaman have both said that this idea has been in there since the beginning because they felt, okay, if our idea for the entire season is essentially censor people too, that, you know, the prejudices against synths are unfounded, that it shouldn't matter exactly what species you are, you still possess these core essences of humanity that make you closely related from an emotional perspective, that, you know, that it would end with, of course, the most human character on the show, someone that we have so much insight into, Jean-Luc Picard becoming one of them, really helps prove that point. But as you're saying, that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to automatically then wave away the the rule that has kept them you know in extinction for so long also how do you think the public would react to that because you'd imagine they have a lot of questions and i wonder if starfleet is going to freely leak the fact that hey the romulans you know planned the attack on mars so we don't need to ban the sense anymore yeah um utopia planitia was an inside job yeah, that um, would uh, sow a lot of dissent. I feel like Picard would not be the only people distrusting in Starfleet after that. Their poll numbers would decrease significantly. Yeah, that would be... And again, it goes back to this idea that the Federation is no longer this stalwart protector of benevolent things. It's, you know, it's fallible. It makes mistakes. And I think maybe we do see a little bit of, you know, people grappling, grappling with the fact that the Federation is staffed by humans making human mistakes. That is also interesting, but 
I, I do think there's going to be some pushback. It's like, oh, well, we've been taught to hate these things for 14 years, and now we're just going to be like, oh, yeah, we're I with them now? Yeah, it's going to be a weird transition. Maybe that's something that they'll run into as a crew as well, because that's a tough paradigm to get used to again after, what, nearly 15 years of this anti-synth propaganda. It should be interesting. Speaking of Starfleet, so... We saw, I thought when Picard put out the message to Starfleet last time that it was like a scrambled signal or something that never went out to them. I guess like they got, Starfleet got the message, but didn't respond back. They just decided to to send people out there and, and hope for the best. Yeah, well, they don't need to call him back and say, yeah, we're on our way. I don't think Star, Starfleet doesn't really operate that way. They never have. Uh, you don't see like them getting back on the phone. And also, this is the same reason that whenever somebody gets on the phone on TV, you don't see them saying, okay, goodbye, or, you know, writing down the address of where they're supposed to meet somebody. It's just like assumed they're going to show up. Yeah. I, mean, I don't know. I, I thought to a certain extent, like I was in Camp Girati of like, I don't know if Starfleet's coming, dude. Like, I know you talked to Clancy, but they haven't received any support so far. But I was proven wrong. That lovely Star Trek theme comes in. And much like that episode where Worf was exploring all those alternate universes and we had like 150 Enterprises or something, we get a bunch of these Galaxy-class ships popping in all at once. Control-C, Control-V, Control-C, Control-V. Yeah, that's a good impression of the people in the visual effects booth for that episode. Exactly. Um, Yeah, but I I love Riker, like, sitting weird in a chair, talking about pizza. It's like all the things I love about Riker. So Um, akimbo. So akimbo. Like, completely, almost like a 45-degree angle in the chair. Yeah, it's like, what is that chair actually shaped like? Or, like, is the ship tilting in a certain direction? Yeah, maybe Riker is the only person sitting upright and the rest of the ship is off kilter. Yeah, exactly. And everyone's just sort of buckled in their seatbelts because they should be using seatbelts on the freaking starships. Yeah, especially since, you know, when the starship gets hit by something, everybody rocks back and forth. <laughs> Lots of Picard maneuvers after that. A lot of rumpled shirts. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But I I thought I, it was great to see Riker again, and it really felt like this time, like, Frakes is there. He's, like, 100% here for it, where, you know, he was still, we talked about this, he's still kind of feeling out the idea of being in front of the camera again. And this time, it's like, no, that's 100% pure Riker. Yeah, and we got to see Captain Riker as well, which we obviously got some hints of over the course of TNG with Riker taking command. Best of both worlds is probably the best example of that. But like, this was the first glimpse at a tried and true Captain Riker. And like you said, it's like he never left the Star Trek universe. He was just in it with his big dogging, with his confident stare. Like, that is Riker to a T that I remember so fondly. Yep, just swinging that trombone everywhere. Yeah, you know what had it off screen. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, like, what else do we need to hit on before we before we sail off into the sunset? Well, I feel like we have to go into this Picard and Data scene because this, for me, and maybe it's just as a TNG uber fan, this might be the highlight of the series so far for me because I, I don't think I realized how much I needed this scene until it happened, and I've watched it quite a few times. The scene in particular, just because I think. The message behind it and the way that Brent Spiner and Patrick Stewart perform it is so beautifully done. I think a large reason behind that is because, and Patrick Stewart has talked about the difficulty in doing this scene, because he wasn't just saying goodbye to Data, he was also saying goodbye to Brent Spiner. Brent Spiner has confirmed in subsequent interviews, like, I am never playing Data again. 
this character has been retired now. And from that perspective, if you're looking at a finale for this character, I think he got the send-off that they thought they gave him in Nemesis, but in retrospect really didn't. I mean, Nemesis, they left the door open a crack. Like, there were directions. If they were going to make another movie, there was a direction they could go where they just, like, put Data into B4 and we pretend that nothing ever happened to Data. I think that's probably, if there had been another TNG movie, that's probably what they would have done. Uh, so I'm glad they didn't because I think this was much more effective, even if it meant we had to sit through Data getting killed twice. Yeah, but this one is... So much more meaningful. I mean, I know him sacrificing himself for Picard is meaningful on its own. But, I mean, we start... The very first scene from this season was Picard in this dream, playing cards with Data. You can assume that this is a dream he's had many, many times. And it's clear that the guilt of the past and the lingering feelings of never truly getting to say goodbye and say the things that he wanted to to Data were just ever-present in his mind. And now he finally has that opportunity. You know, he, he shows a bit of anger, telling Data, you know, you had no right to sacrifice yourself for me. Data wisely puts him in his place by being like, hey, you just sacrificed yourself for the sins, so don't do that. Uh, Picard's able to talk about what he talked about with Soji a couple episodes ago with the, you know, I, did you ever know that I loved you? And I think that Data's saying, much like Soji did, Data's saying that he felt, some part of him felt like it did, was like all Picard needed. But I just love love, love Data's final monologue here about how, you know, I-, I want to live however briefly, knowing my life is finite. Mortality gives meaning to human life. Captain, peace, love, friendship. These are precious because we know they cannot endure. A butterfly that lives forever is really not a butterfly at all. And while it is really simplistic, you know, this Data has always wanted to be human and what human experience is, is there more than dying? It is an interesting idea. This idea of like, in order for something to be meaningful, it has to end. And that can be true for a Star Trek series, it can be true for a Star Trek season, and it can be true for a character as well. And I really enjoy that period at the end as well, because like you said, the sentence that we put in Nemesis was very open-ended. And saying formatively here, this is the end for this character, it makes his character that much more meaningful, not needing to worry about, okay, they might bring the character back and do something different with him. This is how he wanted to go out, and I thought he went out in a beautiful way, especially uh, the image of Data lying on his deathbed, holding the hand of a TNG-era Jean-Luc Picard, just, like, broke my heart, and and made it heart, my heart sore simultaneously. Yeah, it was, that was, like, ugly cry time. Because, yeah. I mean, that's how Data remembers Picard, and that was, like, assuming that this was how he wanted to die. You know, he's back in his robe, maybe a call out to uh, all good things. He's not in the uniform that he died in from the Enterprise E. And all he wanted was the closest thing he had to a human family member in Jean-Luc Picard, holding his hand like any family member would when someone's on their deathbed as they slowly slip into dying of natural causes. And it's just, uh, I still get chills thinking about it. I think it's just an incredibly charming and striking ending considering what data's journey has been this entire time and i mean it's essentially picard pulling the plug on data but he got the closure that he needed as well so that he feels he can move on and he he can let data move on as well 
Well, yeah, it it really echoes. I mean, to me, this looked like um, Harry Potter with Dumbledore in the like King's Cross afterlife oh, yeah. thing. Luckily, there's no like shriveled fetus Jean Luc Picard under the couch or anything. Yeah, it was like shriveled fetus Narek underneath the bench. Oh God, please no. <laughs> yeah, or it, it no, it actually it looks like little fetus tentacles. <laughs> Starts reaching through, and then Picard's like, "I gotta go through the door." Yeah, um, but that, that's what it felt like to me. Um, but they're very careful to say, this is not the afterlife. This is not taking place in your head. This is taking place inside that little dustbuster thing that houses data. And it's a very sophisticated technological thing. It's not spiritual. And, you know, maybe you don't understand it, but they're really careful to say what it is and what it is not. And I think that is a really, that's a really interesting way of hitting the reset on Picard is to let him have that closure and have it be like, yeah, you are dead, but your consciousness is in here with data. And then you're going to go out in the world and you're going to give data what he wants and you're going to get what you want. Right. It's this idea of like, you know, we are still not in the same place. Like you can't move on with me. We're still fundamentally right. distanced. But in this moment, even though we're talking across the room, let's find this opportunity to connect. I might not be the data that you remember right before he went over and blew up in Star Trek Nemesis, but you know, I'm a version of data that you can talk to in this moment. And for Picard, that's all you need. And again, I, I just gotta say that vinyl version uh, you know, that of Issa Briones beautifully singing Blue Skies. I love this version as well because it is like simultaneously soaring but haunting. Because it's so slow and so drawn out that it almost feels like, you know, this plaintive song that Data would play in his last moments, but it has a bit more darkness to it than even like the Bing Crosby version we heard in the first few minutes of the season. Yeah, it's it is it's very ethereal, mm. I think is the word we want. Yeah, and I will also say Issa Briones kills it. Uh, some people might not know that she had her her roots are in you know musical theater in singing her parents are both uh big musical theater performers her dad is probably the more well-known uh, john john briones who most recently played the engineer in miss saigon check out some videos of her singing because she's awesome and this is just another thing to add onto her repertoire i was stunned to find out that she was the one who sang this and it also gives a lot more meaning because again this is data's daughter and i mean her speaking being the one to sing him to sleep yeah yeah, it's really powerful. And I, I love it when they bring in the cast's actual outside of Star Trek talents and let them kind of shine. Uh, kind of the same way that you get Picard doing a monologue from The Tempest uh, at the end of this. Oh, uh, yeah. I lo And I love that quote, too. I, I've always loved The Tempest. And I mean, the idea of dreams has been recurring with both the characters of Picard and Soji and Data. For so, so long that I'm glad they ended this moment on that line as well. And also some hidden significance in that I believe in one of the myriad episodes of TNG where they put on plays in the holodeck, I believe Data played Prospero. So it's almost like reflecting his lines back to him. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense because I it was such a perfect, it was such a perfect line for that occasion and for the, these people in this universe that it was like, they must have used this at some point before. Yeah, I can't remember which episode, but I definitely remember Data rocking like the giant beard and Moses-like hair. 
Yeah. And there, there's this set of YouTube videos where someone just like recuts pieces of, um, Star Trek TNG, um, to, to make them hilarious. It's very, it's very hard to explain, but they're, they use a lot from that episode where they have data like giving a Shakespeare monologue and then he's like, well, what did you think? And they cut to Picard and then they bleep what he says. <laughs> All right, I'm going to have to check that out when we get yeah, out Yeah, I'll find it fun. for you. I'll find it for you. I'll, and I'll tweet it out once I find it again. Oh, that sounds good. But yeah, so that was... Again, say what you want to about how quickly the rest of the episode moved, but it was all worth it for me for that one scene because I feel like that was also a fundamental emotional point for Picard. I mean, one of the reasons why he supports Dodge to begin with is because he sees Data in her. And now that he has finally sort of sought out the person he's wanted to connect with after all this time, it was such a moving moment for him. And now he can move on, get on board with these bunch of people, and continue the legacy of Data as he moves forward with a new crew, with a new family to new destinations. Yeah, but anybody that didn't think this series was going to end on a shot of the new crew and Picard telling them to engage, like, I don't know what show you're watching. Exactly. Like, you think maybe they blew their engage load at the end of episode three when they did it, but no, no, no. This is Picard. It's going to end with that or make it so. And we already had Allison Pill taking care of the latter. Yeah. Yeah, we absolutely did. Okay, so what else do we need to cover? Are we reaching the are we reaching the Picard on the bridge telling people to engage moment of this podcast? Was there anything else you want to talk about about season one overall of Picard? I, I, I mentioned, you know, I think we're both very, very high on the series, but did you have a good time over these 10 weeks? I had a great time. Are you kidding, Mike? Like, this is kind of, this is the Star Trek I think I would show to people if they want to get into Star Trek. I think this is such a great starting point, And it's also a great point if you were a Star Trek fan at any point in your life. I think you can pick this up pretty seamlessly. I agree. I think that they did the right thing, even if it is uh, covering, you know, this prophecy that spans years and species. It feels a little more micro than a series than other Star Trek series. You were talking about this before with Elnor and Narek and really focusing in on one species in the Romulans. We usually don't get that in Star Trek. Usually it's almost like a different species every week. And it can benefit from the serialized format in that regard. I know I say this time and time again, but I really feel like the series had a really tough line to walk in being able to really you know, capitalize on the fan-favorite aspects of the Jean-Luc Picard character, but not A, sullying the canon, and B, feeling like you're just repeating themselves. And I feel like they were able to avoid both of those pitfalls. They were able to introduce some new characters that were very interesting in both their relationships to Picard and the characteristics we found out about them. They introduced or reintroduced old characters who got new stuff to do, and in Seven's case, a seemingly more stuff to do in the future. There's just a lot of good stuff here. I feel like also the the timeliness and the themes that it hit upon, I think it did a better job than Discovery of really hitting on those modern-day themes that Star Trek has always been known for and trying to speak about the issues of today. I just think it was, you know, across the board, just so well done. Are there things we'll quibble with? Absolutely. But I think, you know, other first seasons of Star Trek series, there is much, much more to quibble with. And there's between 
performances and writing and conceptualization and visual effects. Everything was just working in full force here. And I'm so excited to see where this goes, no matter how long this offseason will be. Um, yeah, like, well, we, we need to talk a little bit about the offseason and about what's next for Star Trek. I think we really, at the time that we're recording this, we have no idea when anything new is coming to the world of Star Trek. We know that Lower Decks is in the can. We know that Discovery Season 3 is supposed to happen at some point, but we haven't been given a release date for any of those. And I'm sure that Picard Season 2 is just a glimmer in Michael Chabon's eye right now. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that I read an interview with Patrick Stewart had said, like, you know, the day after the uh, the finale dropped that they were going to, like, get the writer's room together and start brainstorming for season two. So they're very much in the preliminary process. Lower Decks, I believe, was being worked on remotely. So I personally feel like that's going to be the next one to air. But I wouldn't be surprised if that was a summer thing. Because, I mean, the thing about the coronavirus pandemic sort of putting a stop onto essentially all filmed projects is that, you know, you really have to find an ability to pad out the rest of your year and so i could imagine maybe had this not happened they could do something where it was like boom one series one series one series one right after the other now i could imagine picard obviously running through the end of march i could see lower decks being like i don't know a may through july thing and then disco coming back for the fall and filling out the last three months of the year i know that uh, i think kirsten byer said that initially Post-production was going to be done by May, I think. Obviously, I think now it's being done remotely due to, obviously, things that are going on. But I can imagine them now pushing it back to later in the year just to have something to fill out their schedule and not feel like CBS All Access is completely barren of new programming come the latter half of this year. Well, yeah, and I think I think that's something a lot of the networks are doing right now. Um, for instance, uh, we had the same issue with Walking Dead. There was a new spinoff series that was supposed to be dropping right after this season wrapped up, and now they said they're holding it indefinitely. And so we don't know when we're going to pick that up again. Uh, but I I hope that we are all we all get through this in one piece, and mm-hmm. we get right back to work. And that this time next year, we'll have a veritable wealth of Star Trek things to be talking about. Yeah, and we had, you know, a glimpse of something after the Picard finale. We have a new image of Michael Burnham with a brand new haircut standing, holding a pretty (laughs) uh, desiccated new Federation flag. So, I mean, even though uh, we were sort of Federation free in Picard, we're coming back to it in Disco, but it's a very different federation, understandably so, considering it's 900 years in the future. Yeah, this will be interesting. Like, maybe maybe it all went wrong in the Picard era, and it just got worse and worse and worse for 900 years. Yeah, I believe that people noticed when we saw this first in the, the New York Comic Con trailer that I believe one or two stars were missing from the federation flag in the future. So I could very mm. much see an instance where, like, a couple of major peoples had left the federation or they died out yeah that that could be it um i i really i'm I'm excited for what is coming next with discovery because i think they left uh, the most tantalizing of notes yeah i agree and just to give sort of people a heads up as to our own programming so you just and i talked offline 
we're both excited for lower decks, but I think just given the tone and what they're sort of after, I don't think it necessitates weekly coverage. So depending on when it airs, we'll probably just do like one big wrap up of it, sort of like of what we did with the short trek. So we'll do some coverage of lower decks, but we'll be back to do episodic coverage of disco if and when that does come back. So again, it's TBD as to exactly when you'll be listening to us talk Star Trek again, but it will be happening. Yeah, and you know, depending on how long we're all in confinement, I have a lot of things on the back burner, Mike. So we may be coming back to talk Star Trek in some other format. Nice. Yeah, I, I have ideas. I just, you know, I never have time to execute my ideas. Now you got nothing but time. Yep, time enough at last, Mike. <laughs> exactly. Time. It's like we're all in a quantum simulation where it feels like no time has passed at all and we're trying to get done all of our activities. And by activities, I mean binge watching television instead of actually doing things. Yes. But Mike, you have plenty to keep you busy. What are you up to these days? Yeah. So uh, of the shows that, you know, are still on, Survivor is going strong for season 40. I am both writing for it with Parade.com and also podcasting about it on our mothership RHAP. Rob has a podcast where I'm also covering Top Chef as well. I'm doing coverage of Westworld over on the Jay and Jack network, doing episodic coverage there. So I am not not thinking about robots anytime soon. My brain is firmly staying in that tank. And of course, Josh Wiggler and I are going down the hatch every week, no matter what may be going on. We're talking about a show that was, you know, 15 years ago. So there's plenty to talk about. Uh, so we are chugging through season two at this point. So there's a lot of stuff going on post-show recaps, and there's going to be more stuff coming up as well. To Jess's point, I think we're going to try to get a little bit more creative with our programming as shows go off the air, but that's what I've got going on at the moment. Who knows what's to pop up in the future, but you can check out everything that I put out there, including my Star Trek Picard articles at twitter.com slash amikebloomtype. At amikebloomtype is my handle. Um, that's a lot of stuff, Mike. I, I can't believe, you know, the, I can't, I can't imagine what you're going to do with an overabundance of in-home confinement if that's what you were already doing. Right. I would say like my routine has changed a little bit, but not terrible. I know people are like, I don't know what day <laughs> of the week it is. I'm like, I can actually very easily tell depending on what I'm recording at the time. I'm able to set my watch to my podcast schedule, which I'm grateful for. It's good to have those sort of, uh, constants in your life. And Jess, I'm very happy that I was able to be this constant with you for, for 10 weeks. I love waxing profound about Star Trek with you. Yeah, uh, the feeling is totally mutual, Mike. Um, if I was going to be trapped in a quantum simulation in the Star Trek universe, there is nobody I'd rather be with. Hopefully we're not in that study. That thing is just horrible decor, all gray, except for that fire. Yeah, and the lighting is just awful. It's like you see every little dust moat. Yeah, you can't read in there. Your eyes are going to strain so badly. Yeah, yeah, it's it's not conducive to much of anything except lying on the couch listening to jazz. Yeah, maybe that's why Data was like, I really don't want to be distracted by any patterns, so I'm just going to make everything as gray as possible before I die. Yeah, yeah, Some if this, if this simulation was really that sophisticated, it would have had a little more color in it. I'm just saying. Little pop, little pop. Yeah, like put an accent wall in there, you know? <laughs> uh, so I am not doing nearly as much as Mike is at the moment, but that may change depending on how long I am under house arrest. Um, I am currently, I've 
writing the odd article for primetimer.com, including something about this very episode of Picard that dropped this morning. So you can go to primetimer.com and click on features to find that. And I'm also podcasting about The Walking Dead with our good friend Josh Wiggler. And those episodes drop shortly after the episodes air on Sunday nights. And we have, I think, three more of those. There were supposed to be four more, or maybe we just have two and there were supposed to be three, but the finale got held up in post-production. So we don't know when that's happening, but whenever it happens, we are covering all things Walking Dead for you. And that is about it for me. You can find me on Twitter at Haymaker Hattie, and we love hearing from you about all things Picard and all things greater Star Trek and really anything you're watching. Just let us know what you're up to. Um, don't be a stranger during this off season. Uh, so thanks to Mike for joining me on this crazy journey. And thanks to all of you out there listening. And thanks to everybody behind the scenes. And live long and prosper, everybody. And we'll see you again. <laughs>